Hey, Bard listeners. If you live in New York City and love the public library, we need your help. This past fall, our public libraries sustained deep mid-year cuts that forced an end of seven-day service and reduction of our materials and programs. We're now facing more budget cuts for the coming fiscal year. Libraries across the city stand to lose $58.3 million in funding. If these cuts are not reversed, we may have to reduce materials and programming yet again, including further reductions to our days of service. As many as half of all New York City libraries would be open only five days a week. The good news is you can help. Send a letter to city leaders telling them that you support the library. It's easy. It only takes 30 seconds and you can do it now. If you live in Brooklyn, go to BKLYNlibrary.org slash standup, all one word, to fill out the form. If you live in any of the other boroughs, you can send a letter on behalf of Queens Public Library or New York Public Library. Learn how at investinlibraries.org. Thank you so much for your support. So we are walking through one of my favorite places in the world, which is these tall stacks of braille books. I love the smell here. I love how quiet it is. This is Nefertiti Matos. She's an assistive technology instructor at the Andrew Haskell Braille and Talking Book Library in Manhattan, and she's also blind. We met her back in January 2020, so before the pandemic, when our producer was able to meet Nefertiti in person and see the stacks filled with books written in Braille. I just love being surrounded by literacy, knowing that I can at any point reach out or reach up, pull out a book and see it, read what it says. I can't really do that anywhere else without, you know, my technology Uh, reading it out to me or a human being saying, oh, that says this or this says that. To me, what all these books say is independence and personal choice and nothing being filtered through anybody else. It's just all me. Nefertiti first came to the Andrew Haskell Library, which is a branch of New York Public Library, as a patron. And what Nefertiti is describing here, this physical library of browsable Braille books, It's a rare thing to behold. In my home state, our library was more of a warehouse situation where books got mailed out. That's Chansey Fleet. Chansey grew up in Virginia, and as a blind child, she was a voracious reader of books in Braille. And you actually couldn't browse the Braille books yourself. You had to send a staff member back and they would get it for you. And when I came to this library um, as a tourist, when I was 10, mm-hmm. I had my first experience of actually browsing in the stacks like anyone. And that memory stayed with me uh, for, for years. Chanty is now the assistive technology coordinator at NYPL's Andrew Haskell Library. Like Nefertiti, Chanty first started working at the library as a volunteer several years ago. And when they started volunteering, the Andrew Haskell Library was underutilized. Not that many patrons were coming in. So there was a proposal to send NYPL's Braille books into storage. As activists, Nefertiti, Chansey, and others push back on that proposal. The community sprang into action. Here's Chansey again. To be honest with you, I had not come to this library in years because all the books are available digitally now. And even though in theory I love browsing the stacks, I hadn't found reasons to come into the library. And so that's part of what drove us to start the the tech coaching clinic here and to start 
intentionally getting more involved with the library because it's true. This is a valuable community space, but if we don't treat it like it's valuable, if we don't grow our community and turn this place into a community hub, you know, it's really the same thing that libraries are facing all around the country and all around the world as resources go digital. We've got to be more, more than our collection alone. Chansey, Nefertiti, and other staff and volunteers at the library created programming for the public. They created book groups, knitting groups, groups to learn Braille, groups for navigating the world as a Spanish-speaking blind person, and a lot more. Some of the most popular classes are the ones that introduce patrons to assistive technologies, which are tools that help a person navigate around their challenges. Assistive tech can be as simple as a pencil grip for someone who uses their hands differently, and as complex as iPhone apps and accessibility tools. Because of these new classes, patrons were engaging more than ever before with the library. The Braille stacks were saved, and people noticed a big change in their library. Here's Charlene Craft. And back then, it was a storage place primarily. It stored books, Braille and talking books, and people didn't visit very much. They ordered by phone. So you see, it's come a long way. When I first uh, joined the program, it was records. I was getting these big, heavy records. Then came the tapes, and then the cassettes came later. That last voice you heard is Ramon Plaza, another regular at the Haskell Library who started coming in 1971. He agreed that the library has changed a lot in recent years. He's learning to type on a typing machine for blind and visually impaired learners. And Charlene says that she's learned how to use her iPhone and the Braille ME, a refreshable, portable Braille reader. Because of the different things that I have learned... Um, My life is is much different. It's much broader. I can remember a time when I would read about what other libraries were doing, and I would say, but but we never do anything like that. But now I think we're, we're pretty competitive. That idea that Charlene just mentioned, you know, that libraries should have programs and materials equally available for people of all backgrounds and abilities, A broader term for that is inclusion. And maybe you've heard it referred to in the context of what we call DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, something that organizations and individuals have been talking more about recently as our communities reckon with racism, bias, inequality in all of its forms. We've talked here on Borrowed about diversity initiatives in regard to representation of different ethnicities and cultures equity issues for access to library services for people who are incarcerated or adult learners. And today we're going to talk about that last term, inclusion. And inclusion can mean so many things. It can mean saving Braille books from storage. And it can mean making our virtual classes and library services available to kids and adults with learning disabilities. We're going to talk about all of it. I'm Krista Corbett-Kavoris. And I'm Adra Duse. You're listening to Borrowed, stories that start at the library. We're returning to the Andrew Haskell Library, where back in January of 2020, Chansey and Nefertiti were showing our producer a really cool new program. So right now I'm using a screen reader to access my file. My file being a beautiful code of what we call a signature guide. All right, showtime. Hey. Hey. 
That is the sound of a 3D printer starting up. Yeah. The filament. Do you see the filament on the right-hand side on the spool? Oh, yes, I do. That's how it starts. And it's getting heated up to a toasty 230 degrees Celsius. Wow. So don't touch. <laughs> In 2017, Chansey launched a new program to help people with low or no vision engage with the visual and spatial world. The idea for it came when a patron called the library for help. And I knew that this person was very well connected. They were CEO of a major blindness organization, had a corner office, had a staff, and they were calling me to ask me where they could get a touchable map of the five boroughs because they were moving to New York and they needed to know how the boroughs related. And it really struck me in that moment this is one of the most privileged people who is blind that I know of, and they don't know how to solve what to any sighted person would be just like a quick Google search. Something is wrong. And I started to think more and more about it. And, you know, we have the technical means for blind people to experience images. They're called tactile graphics, which just means raised line graphics. The problem is not technical. The problem is it's not very easy for most people to afford, own, and operate this equipment. And so people don't go from saying, I want to see something, to putting it in a format that they can use. So Chansey applied for a grant from NYPL and was able to purchase a 3D printer for the library. The library also received a Braille and tactile graphics embosser from the New York State Commission for the Blind. And Chansey began teaching patrons how to use that machine, too. She pulled out a folder full of raised line graphics created with the tactile graphics embosser and used her fingers to read each visual image. You can hear the sound of the 3D printer humming in the background. So this is a water cycle. We have a little sun up in the right-hand corner and some clouds and some rain and some trees and going down to the roots and then coming back up. That one is just a little holiday card from when we did holiday cards for Valentine's Day. It's just like an embossed heart that people could write their own braille messages inside. That's the Hebrew alphabet. That is a graph. That function is oh, yeah. y equals x plus 2. Um, that's the five borough map, the original oh. request that started this whole thing. <laughs> What's so important about these two machines, the 3D printer and the tactile graphics embosser, is that both blind and sighted people can program them. We teach the fundamentals of designing something that is legible, meaningful, and beautiful when encountered uh, in, in the tactile way. And we made sure that all the software and hardware that we have to the maximum extent available on the market is operable by people who are blind and sighted. So blind people come in here, sighted family members, uh, blind and sighted educators, museum and culture workers, and they can do anything that they want. Nefertiti showed our producer a signature guide that she'd made with the 3D printer. A signature guide is something blind people use to help them sign documents in the right place. Basically, it's a plastic rectangle with a window cut out in the middle. Nefertiti used code to design her signature guide, and coding, for anyone who has tried it, requires a lot of math. I'm excited about it, because it's like, I created this with a lot of help, <laughs> but, you know, I'm doing this, and it makes me feel like I'm not that bad at math, or not as bad as I thought. I thought I was one of these people that could not learn, and I'm learning. Many of us have had very similar experiences confronting sort of the stark realities of how much math we, we missed 
Um, and that becomes apparent pretty quickly if you're trying to do 3D design with code. But this is why the project exists because I think, you know, I can't speak for you, Nefertiti, but for me, I think the reason why I thought I was disinterested in math is that I was never given anything tangible to experience. I wasn't given many images and I'm just not someone that learns from like pages and pages of words a, a spatial concept and I want to make sure that if someone needs a graph or um, geometry diagrams or whatever it is that they that they know they have the chance to learn in a way that works well for them. Chansey and Nefertiti are library workers which means they are committed to expanding literacy for everyone. For these two library workers, though, literacy doesn't just mean reading books. It means having the knowledge and the tools to be engaged and independent in the modern world. I wanted to do for graphics literacy and spatial thinking what we already do for literacy. The National Library Service that we're part of, the motto is that all may read. And like I want to see that all may read maps and graphics. This is a very simple idea that people of all abilities should be given multiple ways to engage and learn. It's something that Carrie Banks here at Brooklyn Public Library thinks about all the time. Inclusive services is really simple. We make library service available to children and teens with disabilities. So that means that they have the same access to the library that their peers without disabilities have. Carrie Banks is a supervising librarian at Brooklyn Public Library's Inclusive Services Department. A major problem with inclusion right now is that so many things have moved online. The biggest thing for kids, of course, is that their public schools went entirely online last year. Being an exceptional parent or a parent of a child with disabilities can be very isolating. Um, and it's, well, it's doubly isolating now during the pandemic. Parents come to us, parents, caregivers, um, grandparents, foster parents come to us because they don't know where else to go. Well, we know that there are about 26,000 students who have just never shown up to class since school has gone virtual. They're just not there. And I suspect that many of them are students with disabilities who are already struggling. Families of children with disabilities tend to be poorer than the average and have less access to things like reliable Wi-Fi and devices. So that's been a real problem. But then sometimes there's just the format itself. So for some kids whose disabilities impact their way that they interact with the world and socialize with the world. A screen is not a person and it's very difficult for them to make that connection between um, between the person that's on the screen and a person in real life. So that that's a real problem, a real barrier for a lot of our kids, especially those on the autism spectrum. And just a note here that while virtual school has been challenging for most students, there are a small number of kids for whom remote learning has been positive. For kids who have social anxiety or who were too distracted when in the physical school building, learning from home can be a benefit. Carrie described one family she had helped during the pandemic. The family had a device, but the child hadn't been showing up to virtual school all year. The mother was on the verge of being charged with educational neglect, but as Carrie and her team learned, there were multiple barriers to access for this family, barriers that the city didn't know about. found out that um, the reason her child had not been online was because she couldn't read or write, and neither could the child, so they had no way to understand the instructions that they were given or to navigate the menus 
on the device. So that was the barrier. So on the library side, we were able to connect her with our literacy services. Um, and on the educational advocacy side, Ruth Deroma from Include NYC was able to um, help her get the support that she needed to actually get online. Carrie just mentioned Include NYC, which is a partner organization that provides training and information for young people with disabilities in the city. Adjua, I think one lesson from these ideas about inclusion is that we need to be constantly thinking about access. How are our patrons connecting with us? What adjustments do they need to be able to easily attend programs and use materials? That kind of thinking is so important particularly in a time of virtual classes and programs. Carrie did have some advice for teachers and others who are running online events to make the content more accessible to kids with disabilities. When we're presenting information, we do it in a variety of ways. We're going to present it verbally, like I'm doing now, um, but we're also going to have some pictures. We're going to use some music to get the ideas across um, and some movement, things like that. We structure them so that they are sensory friendly. We include picture schedules or an agenda at the beginning. We follow the agenda. Following an agenda can help kids know what to expect. It helps kids on the autism spectrum in particular regulate themselves so that they're not surprised by what happens during a program. Carrie also suggested asking more questions of kids during the virtual programs to keep them engaged. Right. And these are adjustments that help not only kids with disabilities, they can also be helpful for everyone. When we build ideas about inclusion into everything we do, it's called universal design. Carrie talked a bit about that too. The clearest example of how universal design makes things accessible for everyone is curb cuts and sidewalks. Curb cuts exists because the Americans with Disabilities Rights says that people who use wheelchairs have the right to go from the sidewalk to the street and the street to the sidewalk. And that's really, really important. But it's not people with, who use wheelchairs who use curb cuts the most. In New York City, it's people with our shopping carts, right, to do our shopping. It's, it's people pushing strollers. Sometimes it's skateboarders. That thing, that curb cut that was designed for people with disabilities has provided access for a much broader range of of people. And the same is true in, in our programs. Um, something that works well for someone with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, um, incorporating a lot of movement in the programs, for example, is also uh, something that works well for younger children, right? They need to move more too. Universal design and these ideas about inclusion, they're interventions that help everyone. Carrie mentioned that while her programs are designed for children with disabilities in mind, it's really for kids of all abilities. It's about leveling that playing field so that we can have the same access to experiences and education. And access is something we need to be thinking about now more than ever. With limited ways for people to engage with the world and socialize during the pandemic, we need to make sure that all are included in our programs and services. That's right. And over at the Andrew Haskell Braille and Talking Book Library, the work has not stopped during the last year. Staff are continuing to run programming virtually, things like Braille study groups, tactile drawing classes, and info sessions about how to use Zoom with screen readers so people who are blind can log on to virtual programming. And they're still mailing Braille and talking books to your home, so we will put a link to all of their resources on our website. 
It wouldn't be a borrowed episode without books. Librarian Lee Hurwitz gathered a list of inclusive books. My name is Lee Hurwitz and I'm coordinator of school outreach services. Marginalized communities are often um, still exclusive spaces that kind of mirror the inequities and oppressive tendencies of the larger culture. Um, So for example, they often center white people, especially white men. Um, And so these are books that center BIPOC and queer people from within the disability community, and they're also authored by them. So the first one is Disability Visibility, First Person Stories from the 21st Century, edited by Alice Wong. Um, Alice Wong is a disabled activist, media maker, and research consultant, and she co-founded the Disability Visibility Project, which partners with StoryCorps to record oral histories. Um, and they are all available to listen to for free online. Um, And Wong also co-hosts the Disability Visibility Podcast. So this book grew out of all of that work and it's very much about creating community and creating a space uh, within this book. Um, Some of the stories include uh, The Erasure of Indigenous People and Chronic Illness by Jen Derenwater. And uh, another one is The Isolation of Being Deaf in Prison by Jeremy Woody. So the next one is A Quick and Easy Guide to Sex and Disability by A. Andrews. Andrews is a queer and disabled cartoonist, and this book is part of the uh, A Quick and Easy Guide series put out by Limerence Press. Just like Carrie talked about on this episode about universal design, this book can really apply to everyone and every body, but it specifically covers basics about disability sexuality. It debunks myths about disabled bodies in general, and it also is a practical guide that has uh, tips. The last one is called The Pretty One, on Life, Pop Culture, Disability, and Other Reasons to Fall in Love with Me by Kia Brown. This is uh, an essay collection by Brown. She's um, a black disabled actor and writer, and she also calls herself a bi icon. Um, And she created the hashtag disabled and cute. The title of this book comes from the fact that Kia is an identical twin. And uh, and growing up, friends would often um, call her twin the pretty one. She is not disabled. These essays are really funny uh, and really personal. Uh, but they all touch on the fact that there's a nuance in disability and being disabled can be joyful as well as aggravating. Brown is an advocate for disability pride. You can find all those titles and then check out the rest of the inclusive book recommendations at our website, vklynlibrary.org slash podcasts. Bard is produced by Virginia Marshall and written by Virginia Marshall and me with help from Fritzi Bodenheimer, Jennifer Prophet, Meryl Friedman, and Robin Lester Kenton. Our music composer is Billy Libby. Borrowed is brought to you by Brooklyn Public Library and is hosted by me, Krissa Corbett-Kavoris and Adjua Aduse. In the interest of inclusivity, we want to remind you that there's a written version of this episode and all of our episodes on our website. If you or someone you know has trouble hearing or just prefers to read, you can do that with these borrowed episodes. And you can also translate that transcript and our entire website into 19 other languages. Try it out at vklynlibrary.org slash podcasts. Beta listeners on this episode included Melissa Marone, Carolisa Kimmel, Katya Shapiro, and Lucretia Neal. 
This is the last episode of season three, and we just wanted to thank you all for sticking with us. But we will not be gone for long. Keep checking your podcast feeds this summer. We're actually planning a fantastic miniseries about overlooked communities that built Brooklyn and made it into this amazing place that it is today. Until then, take care.